Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Thank you for joining Dr. Tarman and me, Molly Painshab, as we sit down with our guest and colleague, Zippy Livna. She shares her personal and professional journey and touches on her unique expertise in working with individuals who not only deal with sugar, carb, and processed food addiction, but who also navigate religious holidays, traditions, and belief systems. Zippy also shares about her GPS to sugar-free program and how she navigates criticisms and pushback from other professionals. Find out what Zippy thinks is missing when it comes to food addiction being recognized by the APA and WHO. Welcome, Zippy. Hi, my name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your host today, along with Molly Painchab. Today, we are speaking with our Israeli food addiction colleague and expert, Zippy Livne. Zippy has a bachelor in nursing and a master's in business admin from Haifa University. She became sugar licensed last year and is an EU certified food addiction counselor. With these credentials, as well as her personal experience as a food addict in 20 years of recovery, she has created the program in Israel called GPS to Sugar Free. She is also a proud member of the Food Addiction Institute. Okay, Zippy, let's get your personal story first. Uh, you apparently have, you've said that you've struggled with obesity and uh, obsessive eating uh, all your life. And 20 years ago, you discovered that your real problem was addiction to sugar and hyper-processed foods. So please give us a brief synopsis of your aha moment when you realized that's what it was and not obesity and not just simply obsessive eating. Oh, thank you, Vera and Molly, and thank you so much for having me on your wonderful podcast. I've listened to some of them, and they're so inspiring, and um, and I, I wish that they'll get out to as many people as possible. I actually was only started really suffering from overweight and obesity after I was married and had children, but I think ever since I can remember myself and even what the stories that my parents tell me about when I was younger than when I remember, there was never any amount of sugar in the world that could actually be enough for me. Anytime I had any candy around me, I had to eat it all up and then I wanted some more. And it didn't matter if my stomach hurt me or if it didn't. And I grew up, I'm a rabbi's daughter and I grew up in an Orthodox home and I am till today uh, Orthodox and I believe in, you know, in my religion. But even then, the commandments of the Torah were not enough to keep me away from the sugar, like the candies that my father told me were not allowed to eat because they're not kosher. I'm, so even the wrath of God couldn't keep me between, it was not enough to stand between me and my candy. However, it really only started, I think that the obsessive eating really only took off after I was married, and especially once I started having children. And at that point, you know, they say that addiction is a progressive disease. And I can truly say that is my own personal experience. By the time I was 32, I was a nurse who could practically teach a dietitian about proper nutrition. 
But, and I knew the caloric value of every single chocolate bar and piece of cake that I put in my mouth, but I couldn't stop putting it in my mouth. And I was, I thought something was seriously wrong with me. I was so ashamed. I hated myself. And even though from the outside, I was a very, you know, optimistic woman and looked like I have everything in place. You know, I'm a nurse, a professional, and I'm married and I have children and blah, blah, blah. Like inside, I felt like I was a complete failure at the one thing that I wanted to succeed at most, which was just to lose some weight and keep it off. And of course, after I became clean from my addictive foods, I realized how much more there was, you know, how much more things in my life that were not okay were actually because of my food addiction. Or my what, sugar, was, you know. what was that aha moment? What was the thing that made you realize it's the sugar? So there, I was working with a physician, a new physician had come into the clinic where I was working at the time. I was working on a kibbutz and um, she said that she had gone to this group therapy that treated overeating and overweight as an addiction. And she said, I'm addicted to food like, like junkies are addicted to drugs. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's me. I'm a junk food junkie. And I, I realized that that's exactly how I eat. I eat the way drug users use drugs. And um, the thing is, this group therapy was more of an emotional eating type of thing. And they basically declared me free and cured of food addiction after one year of group therapy. And of wow. course, it took one crisis in my life to, you know, plunge back into my uh, sugar addiction. And then, and this is how it's so amazing that sometimes from the the, the worst things in life, we can actually have the most growth because the I went to a 12-step program for compulsive overeating. And the reason I went and I didn't go back to that psychologist who did the group therapy was because I couldn't afford to go to the psychologist. And 12-step groups are self-help groups and they don't take any money. So I went to this 12-step because by that time I had realized that I don't need a diet program. I need something that will that will help me in my addiction. I understood that the solution to my problem, that my problem is not that I eat too much or I don't do enough exercise, but that my problem is that I de eat too much because I'm addicted and I can't control my eating. And then I knew that my solution has to be, you know, has to be in that area. I have to look for something that will help me with my addiction and the 12 step program took. And um, I, I, through that 12-step program, I recovered. I have to say that I relapsed for one year, a whole year, after I had been like missed 12-step for compulsive overeaters. I, um, after about 10 years, I relapsed for a year. I had lost 20 kilo. I gained 10 back. After a year, I came back into the rooms, lost five, kept five on as a memento from that one year of hell. But I think it's, it's very, um, I tell that story because people need to understand that part of the, part of the disease is also relapse. And this is something that I very firmly believe needs to be looked at in the face and not pretended like, yes, we, you know, I promote complete abstinence from addictive foods, but relapse sometimes is part of the picture and we need to know how to deal with it. We need to know how to treat it. So Zippy, from that experience, that aha moment, basically from the 12-step community, how did you translate that into professional, the professional world? Because there was no real professional 
food addiction when you came on the scene. So tell us about that. So thank you for that question, because it was quite frustrating for me to see some of the people who came to the 12-step program, which is not a professional treatment, it's self-help, you know, peer-to-peer, and see that some people weren't able to get abstinence, some people came into the rooms and said, yes, I am a food addict, but I do not connect to this program called 12 Steps. I want somebody professional treating me. And I actually came across some OA literature where they had quoted, where they had quoted someone who had a, a treatment center, right, from Milestones in Recovery. I, I th- um, Marty, Marty. Yeah. right? So um, he's been on your program, I think, as well. And I actually eventually went to visit him at the and the recovery. And when I realized that in the US, there are there is such a thing as a treatment center for food addiction, I said, well, why, you know, the, there must be other professionals and why shouldn't there be professional food addiction counselors in Israel? And that's when I started actually researching it as a on a professional and scientific level and just not as part of a 12-based spiritual program. And it opened a whole world to me I came then I came across your center, Vera at Renaissance, and I actually started reading books. I read your book and I then I came to visit you in Toronto. And I started that I, you know, I started having a dream that I will be that food addiction professional who will be able to help people in Israel who need help in Hebrew. Yeah, and, you, you you were like the traveling scholar going all over the place. But then you ended up in in uh, is uh, in um Iceland and did that program. Uh, the yes. impact program. Uh, but I, I'm going to, I'd like you to speak more about the uh, program, but Molly's going to pick up on that. Can, can you, as you were in Israel, uh, doing your own thing on your own, uh, pretty much, you uh, said that you were a uh, rabbi's daughter. So you have a different environment than we have here in uh, America. So uh, how did you live with, or how, basically, how did you manage your traditions? That actually, for somebody who is who is an observant Jew, it can be quite challenging, and a lot people who are not not religious Jewish don't always understand and can't really wrap their head around this. But it's not just a matter of I mean, eating kosher and staying abstinent from sugar and flour and addictive foods. That's okay. It maybe it means that you know you have certain you know not as many food choices, but I don't really see that as problematic at all. But Food is some is actually part of the actual Jewish heritage, the command, some of the commandments of the Torah. These are not just traditions that like you can do or not do. These are actual, you know, for the people who this is part of their belief system that, you know, these are actual commandments given that involve food. And some of them involve wine and grain. And, you know, and I once asked my father, I said to him, you know, on the Sabbath, religious people do not use the phone. We don't write. We don't use electricity. This is really a day of rest. And I asked him once, I said to him, if an alcoholic came to you or a drug addict came to you and said, you look, if I have, you know, it's, it's, it's Shabbat now, it's the Sabbath, but I have a terrible urge to use drugs. Will you allow me to call somebody to ask for help? And he said, yes, I absolutely would allow him because, you know, in Judaism, the sanctity of life takes precedence over any any other commandment in the in the Torah. And so I said, well, what about if it was me, a sugar addict? And I said that 
I, you know, I, I have this terrible craving for sugar. Would you allow me to call somebody? You know, would you say it's okay for me to call somebody? And he said, no. <laughs> so it's very hard. And even though there are some very learned rabbis about addiction who, who are very supportive of 12-step programs for food addiction, there's a real dilemma whether it's bad enough, you know, like yeah. where they would really equate it to the same life-threatening instance as, you know, as a, a drug relapse, like, you know, as the danger of a drug relapse or an alcohol relapse. Can you give a, so, a, a really concrete example? You kind of alluded to it with the, uh, the, the wine and the, uh, but just a concrete example of, of, of uh, a typical struggle that you have with the commandment of what you should be doing and basically our commandments of abstinence and what we can't eat. Yes. So I probably, I think the most difficult one would be once a year at the Seder on Passover where the matzah, which is a, has to be a grain cracker because that's part of the story of Egypt, of the, of when the Jews left Egypt, they didn't have time to prepare proper bread and they had this unleavened bread and it has to be from a grain. Otherwise it's not bread. And there is a very, not a large amount, but there is a certain minimum amount that needs to be eaten on the evening of the Seder, huh. for example, okay? Or for example, there, um, and this is something that is a is really sometimes a big dilemma for people who are not eating any grain at all. Now, this is, it's a very personal thing. I have just, you know, I have discussed it with my rabbi and thought about myself and personally, I'm going to say my conscious decision has been once a year, I eat them that minimum amount of grain. I make sure it's a whole grain and the type of grain that does not trigger me. But I usually don't eat grains, but I will eat that grain. Or on the Sabbath, there's blessings over wine and bread where it's, you know, if you really want to be part of that ceremony, then it it's for many, many people, it is important for them to partake and have that minimum amount, which is not a lot, but that minimum amount. So, you know, I don't usually eat oats, for example, but once a week on, you know, on the Sabbath meal, I will have, I have this very special recipe that I make and I know it does not trigger me and I will eat these oats, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm fine with it because that's what I've done. You know, I've sort of made but everybody has, some people will for, forego the, these things and some people will do it in a way that they know that they can manage. And But it is, it's a challenging thing because as yeah. opposed to maybe, I, I don't know about other religions, but I could see perhaps where, you know, in um, where food is such an integral part of the philosophy of the religion and the, and the ceremonies of the religion that yeah, it can be challenging sometimes, but it, and I think it takes a lot of understanding and acceptance to really help people um, with food addiction who also are part of a culture. And I don't think this is necessarily just for Judaism, but who are part of a certain religious tradition that, that it is very, very important to them to take part in these traditions. I think we have to respect yeah. that. and try to find a way that they can do both, right? Stay abstinent and take part in the tradition. It reminds me of a little bit of uh, doctors who um, 
are treating patients who may have an opiate addiction. And if they have to get surgery, then they still have to have a minimal amount of opiates, but it's done within a very, very uh, guarded uh, protocol, which it sounds like that's what you're doing too. But anyway, Molly, you- uh... Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's that was exactly what I was thinking, Vera, was that what Zippy does is it sounds like there are very specific like boundaries around that use and that must, and for you at least. And I'm wondering with the GPS to sugar-free, you know, is that part of your program? Will you tell us about your program? You know, and what does that look like? We're, we're really curious to know, you know, if there have been any sort of, you know, uh, like pushback or any sort of guidelines that has, have been given to you because of being in Israel and, and working with the population that you do, um, because we face challenges over here in North America. So we're just, we're curious, let us know what's going on with GPS to sugar-free. Yeah. Thank you. Well, um, GPS to Sugar Free is basically the program that I have that I have founded, which is based on all that learning that I did with through the books, through the medical research, through my traveling scholarships, and and the courses that I took, uh, including the Infact, which uh, which certified me a twelve step training program. A sugar license, you know, learning how to use the sugar tool, which is for deep assessment for food addiction and um, being in touch with so many colleagues, wonderful colleagues like you guys on the Food Addiction Institute. So I basically took uh, kind of made a mishmash of everything. I took the things that I um, thought would be most relevant to the most amount of people. And that was basically my guiding philosophy. Where does that GPS to sugar free title come from? So GPS are the three phases of my program, which is usually between an eight to 10 week program, which is the initial sugar and and addictive eating detox. And to give you the information and education about addiction and to talk about what recovery tools are available for the person after the initial detox session. So, uh, So GPS is... Is, stands for the three phases of the program, which is G is the groundwork, which is the base. It's the education about what is addiction, how do foods affect the brain, how and, and affect our hunger and satiety, um, and talk about the different hormones and the different neurochemicals and really give a lot of the science. And also, and then the pillars are the four basic food rules of my program which is, uh, those are the four pillars. I say, when, if you stick to them, they will keep you upright. So it's no sugar, no flour of any kind, nothing that is ground into a flour, no eating between meals. And the fourth pillar is basically learning to what I call it individualized nutrition, which is learning the personal triggers, which they could be foods that don't have sugar and flour or behaviors that trigger addictive eating or the obsession around food. So those are the four basic rules. And I always say that the truth is even a normie, somebody who's not addicted and has no weight problem, if they won't eat sugar or flour and they won't nosh in between meals and they won't eat the foods that they find that usually they'll eat more than they meant to eat, they'll only be healthier. That's the only thing that will happen. These are four food rules that cannot harm you. They can only make you healthier and better and happier and, and feed your soul. Then the P is for it, the S is for the strategies and actions, which is basically the supporting the supporting strats mindset that you know the inner talk, the 
things that you do like food prep and and making a safe surround your own at least personal safe surroundings and and joining a community and all the strategies that basically can help someone stick to those four pillars long term and rather than having it be a diet make it a way of life so these are the three phases that um, my program ta I take my clients through and in that order more or less so it's basically a holistic it's a holistic program where there's um, the detox, which is the physical side of it. And then there is the educational and also learning different coping the, about the different coping mechanisms so that you can live a life free from right sugar free and so free like, from the obsession like a, around. food. Is this like a weekly thing or uh, an intensive? Like, how does it actually look? So it's a week, usually what it is, is it's a weekly two-hour session. I usually do it in groups. I also have a very, one of my favorite program is when couples come as they, when they want to do it as a family unit that, and it, it's a fantastic success rate because then they just support each other. You know, um, so I'll usually have groups. I do separate in my groups, men and women. I find that the groups run better when it's women with women and men with men. So I have a men's group, I have a women's group going, and hopefully soon I'll be opening a group in English as well. And I, um, I am also working now on a program which is not for food addiction specifically, but for women with PCOS and metabolic uh, problems when they're at childbearing age. And it's the, you know, the literature is so, so out there about that detoxing from sugar and going sugar-free before you get pregnant um, has so many health benefits, short-term yeah. and long-term for the mother and for the baby. You know, they talk about secondhand smoke where there's also secondhand sugar consumption with yeah. pregnant women. So I'm working on a new program now for, for these women to go sugar-free before pregnancy, stay sugar-free during pregnancy, and hopefully you know, know so much more about the, you know, about how to live sugar-free that this will also have ramifications for them and their family in the future. So these are basically um, the programs that I'm running now. So it's once a week for about two hours. It's an eight-week program and there's a lot of connection in between. We run a WhatsApp group in between and, um, and I do have also a maintenance program for those who choose to, would like to continue on. I was just curious to know with that, you know, all of that sounds amazing. And I'm so excited to hear that that's going to be in English because I think a lot of what you just said, so many people out there could use. I mean, just from being a moderator in some of these Facebook groups, like it's clear people need these things. So I'm curious though, with all of this educating to your clients, so to speak, do you ever get medical professionals or other professionals who come to just learn or do you do some sort of in-service for them or... Yeah. Tell us about that. Do you, do you, yeah. Who's curious about this other than, you know, those of us with food addiction and more. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we're as in most things, we're a few years behind as far as the recognition of food addiction as a real problem. And maybe part of the obesity puzzle, as you put it, Vera, here in Israel, I have spoken many times in the low carb community, they'll be more open to this message. So I have given a talk to um, like, um, uh, I, I gave a talk to the, uh, the clinic of Dr. Uh, 
I'm so terrible at names. I'm sorry. Um, there's a, a there's a, a big diabetes clinic here that treats with ketogenic eating, and I gave them a talk. I've given talk to diabetes specialists and nutritionists. I also pre-COVID and hopefully post-COVID as well, I um, do give lectures to nutrition students in a university, which is wonderful to open their minds a little bit about, you know, about food addiction. And I also give talks at the workplace on how to lower sugar consumption at the workplace and and talk about, and talk about, I, I have a lecture that I talk about the way the, you know, the, in our millennial time, the food industry has really hijacked our food culture. And here in Israel, it is so, so bad. So kind of get people a little mad at the food industry. I like to do that as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. We certainly like to do that too. I want to go back to the medical professionals because being one myself, I can see how uh, alongside that there are some people now who, thanks to the keto movement, are more open to the whole message. There's still a real strong resistance to uh, our message and still, believe it or not, the push towards low fat and you know, exercise more, eat less. And uh, in Israel, is there any headway? Or are you are you are you stuck in the same resistance? I feel I'm stuck in the same resistance. I don't know. I it's not. It's very interesting because I find that it um it's not so much a matter of if it's low carb or or you know or low fat, but more a thing about they just don't want to. You know, the medical professionals of diabetes and and yeah. obesity who I really try to get them interested in this in this um, subject are not so open to hearing about this other avenue that may be causing obesity and diabetes and metabolic disease. And they're just not, I don't know, they just don't want to deal with it. Maybe because there's no drugs involved. I don't know. Um, but it's not something that they are very, even though when you talk to, when I talk to them one-on-one, they're open to the idea that there is such a thing as food addiction, which is already a step in the right direction, but actually putting time aside for their whole team to hear a lecture on the science about, you know, about this subject and what have you, we're not there yet, but, um, I'm not giving up. I think that um, we are hit. We, there is a certain change coming about, and I think that we have to stay on top of things and not give up and stay positive because I think it is going to be coming in the next years. I don't know how many. I hope not too many, but I think that more and more people are talking about the fact that there are foods out there that are addictive. So, you know, when I met you, Zippy, um, I was impressed with your kind of pioneering spirit. You've got a kind of energy about you of, I'm going to do this. And and, uh, there you are. My impression was, in Israel, the only person speaking about this. Now, I don't know if that's true, but what's your experience? Do you feel like you're alone in, in this work professionally? Like, yeah, how are you and how are you managing that? So... I'm happy to say, and I was pleasantly surprised um, once I started getting to know more about what's going on here in Israel professionally, I was pleasantly surprised to see that there are actually some programs who who are abstinence-based and do talk about food addiction, although they are not addiction treatment professionals who are doing it. It's more weight loss programs that are that are using a, a food addiction model. And I'm happy to say, yeah. What? 
My, my, yeah. I'm flabbergasted. A, a, yeah. a weight loss program that's actually following our principles, because usually it's the opposite. Yeah, so there is, there's actually a weight loss program here that is quite, is getting uh, quite popular. And I'm very happy to say that. And um, where they use an abstinence-based um, philosophy and do talk about like the, they talk about the dopamine and the leptin and the hunger, you know, oh. the hunger and the cravings and, and uh, what have you. And it, and um, I'm very happy to say that it's something that is, is becoming quite successful. So, um, and there are other, and there are other programs as well and other people. It is starting, I think, thanks to the low carb movement as well, yeah. but it is, it is starting to take off and, and also the research that has been done with the dopamine pathways and the, you know, and the similarities between the consumption of sugar and hyperprocessed foods and, and other substances of abuse, that it is catching on and people are give, not only hearing the message, but also giving. So uh, I'm happy to say that I'm not the only person doing that. They are more part of the diet industry. Those other people are, I'm coming from a food addiction treatment, or at least trying to come from a food addiction treatment angle. Yeah. Um, but uh, yes, definitely. The, one of the things though, I find that um, is maybe not stressed enough here is the, uh, the, the fact that it is a chronic disease and it's not something that goes away. And it's something that does need continued support for many people. It's, yeah, it's my impression. I mean, I'm really grateful to the keto community because they've really brought, in a sense, the, the solution before the, they even recognized their problem. But now here we are uh, to say, well, for those of you who think now I just have to do this and I'll, I'm essentially cured, you know, we, we want to teach you this dynamic that, that don't, you can't pick up sugar even, even in your little cute little bars, um, you know, the keto bombs and whatnot. So I think it's a happy marriage. Uh, and I'm glad to hear that it's happening in Israel as well. So am I right in assuming you're not quite um, as alone as uh, it sounds? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm happy to say that that is so. And uh, the other thing that I, I think that um, is important, like I said before, which I don't think is stressed enough in many of these programs, is the, the, as how to deal with a slip or relapse if it happens. Exactly. Because as you said, you know, it's one thing to say, look, you can't have your little keto bars and you, you've got to really stay away from the foods that are addicted because the more you eat, the more you're going to want. And if you don't eat them, you know, this will help you not want them. But having said that, we do have to know that because the cues for addictive eating and these hyper, you know, hyper delicious foods is 24-7. Yeah. I mean, this is such a you know, this it, I I once when I did the twelve step training program, right? It was a recovered drug addict who had done it, and he said, "I said to him, can you imagine if you went every day to work and they would say, you know, they would say, Rami, look, here's like this bowl of pills that I brought from my mother made them. Especially, you don't want to try just a few of them, or you go home to your mother and she says, oh, Rami, look, I." ground up your favorite drugs. They're going to give you the, it's so great. And I made it specially for you. I worked so hard, you know, <laughs> to, to process it. You know, how would it, would you say the same things about like relapse and, 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 exactly. you know, and slip ups um, if it were. And I think that this is one of the biggest challenges that food addicts have more than perhaps maybe except 
sex. I don't know. I'm not going to judge, you know, I'm not going to compare, but I think that it's really, really difficult. It's one of the biggest challenges for people recovering from food addiction is the 24 seven overstimulation to eat addictively, like just eat me, drink me, eat me, drink me, eat me, drink me, I'll, you know, make you happy. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and I, uh, if I can just pull up the stereotypical uh, uh, image of the Jewish mom, I can just see that, that, you know, there's that you got to eat this. I made it for you. <laughs> That's, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we, at the Jewish weddings, we always said that we knew who the non-Jewish guests were because they would drink alcohol and the jewish people at the at the non-jewish wedding would eat <laughs> like you know there's like we go to this wedding there's no food it's like it in it, you know in jewish tradition this is giving love this is celebration this is you just have tons and tons and stuff it's just food 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 that's it and i mean the food here in israel really is wonderful but also the the freedom that the food industry has here to aggressively market to children and teenagers there's really not nothing stopping them from doing anything so so you've just given us a big the, one of the struggles what can do you, do you have a success story that you can share with, with us oh i have many give us more. <laughs> but uh <laughs> i think that um I, I think i will give maybe one of my favorite success stories is a woman who came with many, many doubts whether she had been through so many diets and she really doubted whether she, she said, I just wanting it's like, I'm just signing up for one more program that I'm going to fail at. And which I hear so many times from so many clients. And I said to her, you know, come give it a chance. And she did. Now she's, she's a, um, she's a baker. She bakes cakes. Like this is what she does for a living. She bakes these beautiful birthday cakes amazing. And she just got it. She got it from, from the science, you know, when, when she, I ex explained how cravings happen and the dopamine and all that, she just really, it just clicked something her, she said, like, she felt like her whole life just fell into place. And she is now in a, you know, it, um, she's lost a lot of weight, but much more than that, she was severely addicted to Diet Coke and XL. And she drinks water and soda today. She has completely free from those addictions as well. And she she is so happy. She she feels like she was truly freed from this. And she's been at it now for quite a, a while. Is she still a baker? She's still a baker, <laughs> interestingly. <laughs> but you like, let's give her time. And I have another one of my first clients was a nurse who actually came only because her friend asked her to come with her to the workshop. And that was the only reason because she had already given up. She said, there is no diet and no program that can help me. She felt like she was absolutely beyond help. And till today, she's sustaining, like she's run a 5k and 10k and she's a sustaining a 20 kilo weight loss. And she, she's, if, you know, I always say that the weight is, it's important. I'm not going to say it's not important because I remember how important it was to me when I lost the weight. Yeah. But it, it once you once you once these clients experience the freedom from the obsession around food, they understand how secondary the weight loss is, and that it's cool and it's fun and it's great not to have to change your clothes size because of you know because of you gained or lost weight. But it's the actual freedom. It's living that sugar-free life that uh, is so amazing.
Yeah, no, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing those stories. I think it's really important for our listeners to hear those kinds of things for sure. Okay, Sippy. So here's the deal. We are, we are international. We got, we had Jen Unwin from the UK a few weeks ago, um, an interview that will be coming up. And now we have you in Israel and you and I are on the Food Addiction Institute together, and we're working on the DSM and the WHO, WHO for the ICD. So really, you know, I guess here's where we want to know, you know, what do you think we need to do in the larger picture for food addiction globally? You have this traveling experience, you have the nursing and the pharmaceutical background and the program, all that stuff. Give us, give us the rundown. Like, what do we need to do? I think we need to get much more on the public stage. For example, that is why I'm so committed to the ICD, like, you know, getting food addiction as a, as a diagnosis, as a formal diagnosis in the DSM and the ICD. Because once we get that and we can start doing proper research on these subjects, this is what's going to bring us to the, you know, to the forefront of the medical community which will also give us the springboard into regulation, even though it's happening already with, you know, people who are my heroes, like Robert Lustig and, and um, you know, and, and Gary Taubes and, and these people who are bringing it to the public uh, and to regulation and, and, and also um, other people in the FDA. But, but, but I think that also it, it can't be left just for them. They need the backing of the little, you know, I don't know if we're little people, but, you know, of, of the oh really yeah. to have the, the medical, more people in the middle community. And I always, I actually always quote Robert Lustig. It took 60 years for the, you know, for the tobacco to put, get the tobacco industry in line and start regulation on them. So we're only, if you ask me, we're only about 10 years down the line. I hope it won't take another 50, but I don't think it's going to take two or three. I think we really just need to look at it as a, you know, as a long-term thing and just keep, you know, keep plugging away at it. And, and we're, and I see already the difference. I started my journey as a, in, in a professional, you know, in a professional, I started researching and that it was about eight years ago. And I think that we're so way much further ahead than we were then, then we were really like a queer, (laughs) you know, weird, weird animals, these people talking about food addiction. And now I think it's being discussed more and it's a more acceptable thing to talk about. It still needs refinement, but if we really want to get ahead, we have to put it into these formal channels like regulation, you know, government regulation and um, getting it into the medical community in a formal research-based clinical evidenced way. So just as a way of us starting to wrap up, um, where would you like to see yourself in five years? Like, or either in this policy way or professionally, or what's your, what's your sort of uh, goal beyond the day-to-day food addiction work? I think that I, I would love to see myself on, you know, on the stages talking about giving lectures to public, to professionals, you know, being involved, which is what what I'm working towards now with the Food Addiction Institute, and but and and with the people that I'm reaching out to now, but really being involved in a more public way about, you know, getting the word out there and getting the science up in front of people's eyes and and in their minds that there really is such a thing, and people are suffering from this and they're dying from this disease. 
this is not something to be taken lightly at all. And um, I'd really like to see that happening. And I will do my best to work with that as well as working with the individuals because these recovery stories that I see happening in front of my eyes are are really so, so inspiring for me. And they help me in my own personal recovery so much. But also, it's just amazing to see that, yes, there are people who can get free, even though they've been suffering for many years. And to be able to be one of the people facilitating them to get there is just I can't describe what a wonderful feeling it is. Yeah. Okay. So tell us what are some, do you have any future projects that you're, you know, that we should be looking for? So I think I've talked about them. That's the PCOS workshop that'll be coming around in the next, uh, hopefully in the next half a year, eight months and, and my English, uh, what I'm hoping to do is get an English program um, going quite soon. I'm hoping I still have some stuff on my plate here in Israel and Hebrew that I want to get because there's one so, so much wonderful stuff in English out on the web today. I mean, Vera, what you do in Mali, what you do, what Clarissa does. And, and there's many, many, many people who I completely admire and model myself after them. But in Hebrew, there's a real lack. And so my first priority from a totally idealistic standpoint was to get more material out in Hebrew. I'm writing a book now in Hebrew. Wow. And yeah. And uh, hopefully it'll get, you know, eventually I'll write it in English as well. But uh, really get me. If I know that at least there's that material out there available in the Hebrew language for people in Israel, and then I can work on the next, you know, ongoing international. That's basically what because this whole dream started with the fact that I felt that here in Israel, there's just people are not talking about this enough. Yeah. Okay. So where can our listeners find you? Granted, now all of your stuff really is in Hebrew, but we may have somebody here who listens or, or who speaks Hebrew. So um, where can they find you? The best place to find me today is on Facebook. I have a, I do have an English page called GPS to Sugar Free. It's Tzipi Livne, GPS to Sugar Free. And in Hebrew, it's Tzipi Livne, Mishkal Bari Verosh Hopshi. So there's a, my Hebrew page, and um, I also have a YouTube channel. I have an English YouTube channel, a Hebrew YouTube channel, where you can find um, lots of really good stuff there. And of course, um, I will we'll leave my contact details with you, Molly and Vera. So anybody can contact you guys and and um, and reach out to me personally. I'm more than happy to hear from people. I do treat pri- uh, clients privately in English today. Not all my work is in Hebrew. So I, you know, English clients are more than welcome to come with me to uh, work with me. And um, yeah, and thank you guys very, very much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. You don't get away that quick, though. We do have a signature <laughs> question that we right. ask everybody before right. they go. Okay, so Zippy, if you could tell an, a younger version of yourself something about sugar or carb or food addiction and recovery, what would it be? I think I would probably go back to the woman who relapsed after Mm -hmm. 10 years in recovery. And I think that I would tell her what I know today about food addiction and about the way addiction, the disease of addiction works. And I think if she had understood that then her relapse would not have, would have been, would not have been not as bad and not as long, you know, as it was at the time. I always say if there had been a tippy leaf net that could have taught me at that time, about the things I know today about addiction, I have absolutely no doubt that my recovery journey would have been with less 
bumps and, and would not have been a whole year of relapse. It would have, I have no doubt about that. So that's probably who I would go back to and also give her a really, really big hug and, uh, and tell her that it's okay and there's light at the end of the tunnel and it's never, never too late to get up and start again. Thank you. That was wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here, Zippy. And we can't wait to hear more, see more of you on the global platform. And um, any last thoughts, Vera? Well, I just want to say thank you, Zippy. Like I said earlier, you have a real pioneering spirit. So I know you're going to you're going to make some, well, you already have made headway in Israel and uh, in the uh, Jewish population. I think it's great. Just keep doing what you're doing. And that's great. We, we you know, we are the ones that are carrying the, the bulk of the work ahead. And it's great. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. And Vera, thank you so much because you were really there at the beginning of my journey and gave with your whole heart. Um, I was, I came, Molly, you should know, I came to Vera was what, she was one of the first people I came first food professionals I came to visit was her and Beaton Janssen in yeah. Sweden. And um, I was this like, <laughs> wasn't that young in age, but I was like this newbie, <laughs> greeny, <laughs> thirsty person wanting just to know everything. And and you guys were so generous with your knowledge and your, and you know, you opened your doors and your hearts to me. And I can't thank you enough because that was such an integral part of my, you know, of, of, who I am today, who I've become today professionally. So thank you so much. And um, and Molly, I just want to give a shout out for our food addiction professional networking that we have um, yeah. co- that we co-chair, which is a new thing. We are so happy to say that um, now there are enough food addiction professionals around the world that we realize that we uh, we as food addiction professionals need a support platform for each other and a place where we can ask questions and get and 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 post our dilemmas and also share our successes and our stories and what we're doing and I think it's working it's new we've only been doing it we've had two meetings so far and yeah. it's and uh, we have a Facebook closed Facebook group and this is really only for practicing food addiction professionals but it's blossoming and I, I I don't know I think it's such an amazing project that we're doing together. It's so gratifying to see it. And that makes me feel like I'm not alone at all. So yeah. that's what I can. Yeah, Yay. I agree. Yay. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.